everyone, I'm Erin G, and this is Alt Text. Today, I'm joined by Toronto mayoral candidate and former member of parliament for Whitby, Selena Cesar Chavon. Selena was a liberal member of parliament for Whitby from 2015 to 2019, where she also served as the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister and also as the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of International Development. In February of 2019, she advised the Prime Minister that she would not be seeking re-election, and in March of that year, she left the Liberal caucus and finished the rest of her term as an independent, an action fueled by allegations of microaggressions and tokenization on behalf of the Prime Minister himself. In 2021, Selena published a book called Can You Hear Me Now? which was nominated for the 2021 Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for Political Writing, and it details her upbringing, journey as a young Black woman entrepreneur, former politician, and the adversity that she had to overcome. In April 2023, Selena declared her candidacy for the mayor of Toronto after recently re-elected John Tory resigned following the confirmation of an affair with a staffer. Selena and I spoke about the healing she's done since leaving federal politics in 2019, how Toronto can't afford to continue to raise taxes on residents, and what it means to lead with empathy and compassion. So please enjoy my discussion with Selena Cesar Chavon. for taking the time to chat with me. I am interested in talking about so many things with you. Um, but first and foremost, what, uh, so you jumped into the uh, Toronto mayoral race in yes. April. What, what led to that decision? Because you left uh, federal politics in 2019. And then you've kind of just been doing your own thing. And then suddenly here you are. Uh, yeah, so I think it, it took a little bit of time to heal from the from leaving federal politics and figure out exactly who I am and what I could offer, especially to a city like Toronto that, you know, is facing some real significant challenges financially. And those challenges tend to impact, you know, people from marginalized communities most. And so I think that that intersection of, okay, what did I need to heal? How did that work? And then how do you translate that learning, that healing, but also a, an assuredness in myself um, into a new position as mayor of the city of Toronto? And I think that um, it was a perfect opportunity for me to jump in. And um, yeah, so here I am. And why did you opt to go to municipal politics instead of provincial politics? Yeah, um, so there's a number of reasons, you know, in terms of party politics and structure that I really didn't want to deal with at those levels. And I've had people say to me before, you know, Selena, you have unfinished business in politics. And every time I thought about going into a federal or municipal campaign where there is the, not necessarily the party politics from um cross-partisan type way, but even within your own party structure, it seems like there was a, a lot more contention there. And in a municipal setting, working with counselors that don't have that political sort of interference that are listening directly to views from their local constituents and then implementing those on a very practical down to the earth type of way, I thought that that was a, 
a much better model for me than um, than fighting my party to get to fight for the people that I care about, which was my communities. Mm-hmm. And and what I really like about local politics in Ontario is that it there isn't a party system. Right. I'm from BC, where we do have parties, and yeah. uh, in Vancouver's municipal election in the fall, they basically the a better city party basically cleaned house, and so now they've got this majority and are able to deliver on a quote unquote platform that they put together right. without without actually consulting and engaging with residents in a meaningful right. way right. and instead are like spinning their policies as well this thing we did was good and all of these other people voted against it meanwhile their actual policy is less than what say the provincial government would have supported right. them with and so yeah i think that your perspective is really interesting because you know and you you know know how the challenges that come with party politics and both in terms of bipartisanship or multi-partisanship and within the structures and hierarchies of of your own party for sure for sure and so you you talked about the process of healing uh over the past i guess three and a half years yeah so what what has that been like because we've everyone's kind of also gone through this other trauma which was the pandemic and so we're all healing from that too so what was your healing process like from politics and then how did the pandemic either compound or help that process yeah so I think for me the pandemic actually helped it um, because after leaving politics in 2019, I was really struggling because I felt like I needed to do something. I couldn't have any gaps in my resume. I'm a black woman. Having a gap would be catastrophic for finding a next job. I couldn't find a job for a year. Um, it was really starting to put a lot of pressure on me to, to perform, to do something. And then March of 20, 2019 happened. Wait, no, 2020 happened. And like it was like the universe was saying, Selena, if you don't stop moving, I will stop the whole planet. And the whole planet stopped. And it forced me to stop and really go inside myself. I signed up with the Chopra Center and um, became a certified health instructor, certified meditation instructor, really took a deep dive into Ayurvedic practices, which is a 5,000-year-old ancient Indian healing system. Um, and really became a coach at it, not for coaching purposes, but just to to have full circle on the healing journey that it entailed and really started to to find myself and re reconnect with the most powerful version of Selena that there ever was, which is like the three to five-year-old Selena that I'd forgotten, that was put away, that was told to be quiet, that was told, you know, you're supposed to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. Um, That was everything that, you know, politics sort of placed me in like this very specific box. She was not. And um, I keep thinking that even in that dramatic sort of interaction with the prime minister, it was her that was released. It was her that came out and said, "Uh, hello, enough of this. Like Mm -hmm. you are. And, And even in that moment, I didn't realize what that moment was, but that healing journey allowed me to actually take advantage of that moment and say, oh my God, little Selena wants to come out to play the one that's been silenced, the one that's been traumatized, the one that's been pushed aside. She wants to come out and she is powerful. And so 
Um, now I just need to let her come out without so much swearing. <laughs> <laughs> um but still i still swear so that doesn't help either well, um, we don't need to be precious about it right like, yeah because she is that's that's the version of her that is of me that is really amazing and is uninhibited and doesn't ascribe to the rules that were never written for or by me or people like me in the first place mm -hmm. and so why do i keep trying to silence her or be different from her mm -hmm. It's, it's a silly notion. And so Selena's back. That's, that's a great message. It sounds a little bit like there's a book here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps I started writing something called finding Selena, but, um, yeah, I'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love this, this concept of play because I think yeah. as adults and particularly as a black woman and other well, women in general, but then black women, other women of color, um, we, we are so often told that we need to act a certain way. And like you yeah. said, you couldn't have any gaps in your resume because that looks bad, et cetera. And all these societal expectations, yeah. but in doing so one, of course, we lose touch with ourselves, but two, we also lose this concept of play and that, that drains us. And I think yeah. that throughout, or for, for people that I know, the pandemic was in part a gift because it allowed us to kind of really deepen relationships that um, were that were there already, but it also helped us to kind of cut ties with people and relationships that weren't really serving us in yeah. a healthy and effective manner. Yeah, I don't know if that was the same for you at all. Yeah, well, I think I think the first thing I needed to do was to find myself again, right? Which I mean, there's nothing better than stopping the world to have that happen for me personally. I don't want to judge anybody who that, the, the, this experience was different. It was traumatic and I, I want to, you know, leave space for that. But for me, it allowed me to just be at peace for the first time in my life because there was no expectation for me to do anything. I didn't have to be twice as good. I didn't have to be twice as fast. I didn't have to be twi run twice as long. I didn't have to do anything that was a societal expectation and it felt good. Mm. it felt good to do nothing and it's freeing um, a little bit it's freeing and you know one of the the practices of meditation is being present and bring, being in the now and the one thing that that moment allowed for me was for me to be in the present so whenever anybody would ask me selena what are you doing next i'd be like i'm doing now next that's mm -hmm. it i have yeah. no plan i have i have no plan there wasn't like next i'm going to be the mayor of toronto it was like Ontario resigned I put something on the internet people like re responded to it and I was like okay yeah let's do it right so it wasn't it wasn't and and it is about let's see if not so much of that we could have fun in this election um fun is part of it but let's see if we could love if if we've mm. seen globally that hate can win mm -hmm. let's see if love can win too right right yeah absolutely and I you know I was in a, another conversation earlier today about the increasing polarization of politics in the US, globally, yeah. in Canada. And, you know, we just, we're, we're talking on like the day after the Alberta election. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting that there is this increasingly divisive politics, but, and like the urban rural split is like just extremely hardcore these days and so yeah. 
Toronto is this really interesting battleground that is it's just such a big place it's you know Canada's largest city but it's very urban and then you kind of get a little bit broader into like the exurbs and it's a little bit more quote-unquote well suburban yeah yeah. I guess yeah yeah and it it really is so this this is an opportunity for Toronto to elect someone who is not just progressive because I think progressive is a term that we use that is just it's I don't know it's it's still subpar for me Mm -hmm. because you know we have progressive candidate candidates that are putting out platforms about increasing taxes at a time when people are struggling they are burdened and is there another way? Can you possibly use your progressive mindset to think outside of the box? If you know that when you tax people that the rich find loopholes and that poor people cannot find those loopholes and they, the rich will end up get, escaping from paying those taxes and the poor will end up doubling down and paying it even more. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that as a progressive? And you're not looking at like, who is this going to hurt the most? So you could say taxes and, you know, your tax, property taxes in Toronto are low anyway. That's because they have a tremendous business base. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be lower in Toronto than it is in Durham region. So if we're not like actually thinking this through at, a, at not just the breadth of what people are saying, but the depth of what they're saying, even as progressives, we are going to find ourselves in a holy moly crap situation because we're it's the the rhetoric is going to be well we got someone who was progressive we got someone who was you know really supposed to be looking out for the little guy and look what still happened so meh told you that wouldn't work let's move on let's start to like really start to pander to people who are going to listen to the donald trump type rhetoric that we had in the u.s they're going to start listening to that here because you're not looking out for poor folks you're not looking out for this (laughs) yeah i And yeah, we're in the spiral. (laughs) I think that on the one hand, progressive is kind of meaningless because because it seems to have usurped the word liberal. Right, right. Like people people now just kind of like non-actual progressives who people who are more like liberal leaning tend to use progressive in instead of liberal because to them i think liberal means capital l big l liberal yeah and i i mean i don't know i just i just think that people that say that they are progressive need to think a little with a little bit more depth Mm -hmm. than just the status quo and maintaining the status quo and you know chipping around the edges just a little bit so it looks like I'm a little bit more progressive than Trump or then I'm a little bit more progressive than the, the alt-right guy is yeah. bullshit like sorry you could bleep that out but it is I just I don't have time for it and I so- you know what it's actually it's it's really unnerving because we don't have time for a wolf in sheep's clothing mm. We do not have time. We do not have time. We saw what the pandemic did to Black and Indigenous communities and communities of color in Toronto, where there was 80% of the burden of COVID-19 was falling on 52% of the population. That's that's actual nonsense. Mm -hmm. And if we're not going to take the time right now to look at those social determinants of health in a progressive way and not in a tax-based way, which is not the way to run a big city by itself, but anyhow... In a in a in a progressive way, then we're we're going to continue to leave those people behind. 
as geopolitical issues get worse, as climate change gets worse, as calls for social and racial justice gets worse, and as the recovery period of the pandemic lengthens. So what are we doing as progressives if we're not actually looking at the poorest and most vulnerable and saying, let's help them first? Mm -hmm. And does taxing help them? Uh, No. So let's think of another way. It's not that hard. It's not a a dissertation. It's just a decision. So how would you define what it means to be a progressive then? Uh, It's not, uh, progressive is bullshit. It's not a progressive. (laughs) Um, What it it means to to govern and look at people's humanity and their dignity is to have a compassionate lens when policies are going through, to have a compassionate lens, meaning empathy in action. You know people are struggling right now. So what do you do? Well, hmm, do we tax or not tax? Well, tax is going to hurt people who are struggling. So how do we not tax and still get revenues in? That is looking at people's humanity. Mm -hmm. That is respecting their dignity. That is understanding, hey, in Ontario, the social assistance and social housing has been downloaded to the municipalities without a correct funding formula. So how do we start to collect revenues that account for that without taxing, which is not compassionate? Well, here we could do X, Y, and Z, or we could put an equity lens on this, this, and this. It's about humanity. It's about looking at our humanity with a degree of love and a degree of compassion, and it can be done. The challenge is most don't have the political will to talk about it in this way, and so it won't be done. Would you say that political will is the same or different than having the courage to do it? Oh, political, people can have the courage to do whatever they want for themselves, which is an egotistical model. Political will, when you know you're gonna like have to face people is a different thing, which I know political will is tough. It's hard because you wanna get reelected. Mm-hmm. So if, if your mandate or your position is around, I need this to pay the bills, then you're probably not gonna have the political will to do what is absolutely right by people because it's gonna piss some people off. You know, I think I get the sense that after George Floyd and the massive Black Lives Matter DEI movement in 2020, that there was, you know, the the needle was moving a little. It was moving slowly, but it seemed like there were like people who were interested in in changing things. But I get the sense now that you know, now that things are back to quote unquote normal, whatever that means, that all of those initiatives are going by the wayside because there's so many other distractions and that all of that work takes so much effort and it has to be deliberate and it has to be intentional and people just don't wanna take the time to try to understand that. They don't wanna see other people with humanity, but also those corporate initiatives aren't the same from the public as as the public policy side and to me that almost seems like the public policy side has gotten worse and I don't know if that's because of you know uh the the economy or inflation or what have you but it just seems to me that things have kind of gotten worse from that equity lens in policy can I swear on this podcast absolutely 
So did people give a fuck in the first place? I mean, right. Actually- so, so everybody would, you know, everybody talked about this woke agenda that is supposed to be dying. Like everybody after George Floyd or most people, some of us were already awake. Right. So we were awake. We were doing our thing. Then all of these people woke up and were like, oh, my God, there's racism here. Holy shit. Right. And they came around and they were like, you know, I want to help all those people who are already awake. Right. So I, I, I liken it to like people who are awake. They're, they made their bed. They have, they cook breakfast. They're starting to make lunch, dinner, supper. They have all the snacks out. And then the people that woke up are like, oh, my God. Well, you know what? I'm going to make omelets because, you know, I really want to help make omelets. We're like, we have the fucking eggs already made. What are you doing? It's like, but, but I want omelets now because omelets are really, really good because they have vegetables and they have food. Fuck, we don't care about your goddamn omelets. We've already made eggs. Get on board with making the eggs or get some money into making more eggs or doing something else, but we're not doing omelets. It's like, oh, well, I want omelets. And now you're not giving me my omelets. So I'm going to like leave. Or you know what? Forget the whole woke movement anyways. I want to go back to bed. Who gets to decide who gets to be woke and who gets to go back to sleep, Right. Apparently, it's people like DeSantis who gets to decide when and where and who could be woke. Mm-hmm. Well, the only people who was waking up, and excuse me, was a lot of white people. Yep. You know, a few black people too who realized, oh my God, I am black, right? So I'm sorry, but if you never gave a fuck before 2020, please take several seats. You, your woke, your eggs, your whole freaking bunch of it and go Mm -hmm. right and so so selena okay that sounds really doom and gloom so what do we do well you put people in place or you support people who are saying no no no. number one i was already woke Mm -hmm. right talking about race in 2018 when i was getting dragged for talking Mm -hmm. about it instead of it being a leadership moment for canada get dragged for it. So put people in place who are doing the work. And I use myself as an example, but I'm a poor example of someone who was actually doing the work, right? So put people in place who are doing the work from time, support them because they know what they're doing. Nothing for us without us. They know what they're doing, right? And and actually start to dismantle the, the policy. So go down to the root of the problem. In 2015 to 2019, there was not a dress code for women in parliament. Not that that's where you want to start in fixing mm-hmm. stuff by giving women dress codes, but like there are policies in place that keep the status quo moving, yeah. that keep patriarchy moving, that keep capitalism moving, that keep docile bodies docile. And it's time to wake up. And we are just so bad at unpacking power in Canada. We don't want to talk about it because. I think most people just don't understand it and they well, view some it- people should read Michael Foucault then they should read like a <laughs> pick up a book pick up a book you want to you want to jump into how to be anti-racist but you don't understand your own structures and how they were they were created mm-hmm. read um uh punishment and discipline from Michael Foucault understand the structures that you created for your own selves and how absolutely brain numbing and stultifying they are for your own self and then you want to put me in there and expect me to survive understand your own system Mm -hmm. but no you want to talk about being anti-racist when you don't even understand your own house Mm -hmm. clean up your own house before you know yeah understand it then you could clean it Mm -hmm. 
then you can invite people in. But until such time, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and so what has your message been on the doorstep for voters in trying to convince them to understand the humanity of others and voting in the, maybe the best interests of others and then themselves, maybe? So my my plan at the doorstep is is 100% on a principle or on a pillar of creating new revenue streams for Toronto, irrespective of what your intersecting identity is. If you do not run Toronto like a big city, like the research says a big city should be run, everybody at the bottom will stay at the bottom or be left behind. So anybody who's talking about, you know, equity, this, or this, these little fringe things that they know they have to throw in black and indigenous in their platform just because, and they're not looking at the actual structure, changing the structure itself, kick rocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm not trying to convince anyone at the door of anything other than they need to interrogate their candidates as to where the money is coming from. Mm -hmm. Because if the money isn't coming from a new source, it's going to come out of your pocket. Right. And if you can't afford it and you can't afford a loophole, you are going to get squeezed. So good luck. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a message that resonates with a lot of people and helps you stand out in a, in a field of like 102 candidates. 100%. 100%. It is the message that will rise above the din, I hope. But again, it's not a exciting or shiny message. It's not a $100 million funding announcement where we don't mm -hmm. have no money in the bank. It is not, it's not that. It is talking about revenue streams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it couldn't be more anti-Selena-esque anti mm -hmm. to be talking about something so fundamentally boring. Yeah. However. It's like the debt ceiling conversation was, that's been going on. Right. But if Toronto was able to do this, not only will it be able to sustainably and predictably fund social housing and social assistance, it could lead the charge and change how every other municipality in this province works. So you don't think that in Oshawa they need housing paid for or in Hamilton? This is a leadership moment. This is not a moment to decide that we're going to keep doing the same things that John Tory did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not dissing Tory. I'm just saying he's not there. So let's change it up. Well, yeah. And generally that's what, what you want from a new leadership, right? You don't you want would hope. You would hope. But a front runner is talking about increasing taxes at a time when we're in recovery. So yeah, here yeah. we are. I mean, on the upside is that at least, you know, it's not Vancouver where the new mayor said that he wasn't going to be increasing taxes, uh, property taxes 10%, and then had to raise them 12%. So <laughs> I was like, well, the math ain't math in there. Math ain't mathing, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of, of Tory, ever since he was elected, voter turnout in Toronto has fallen. And just last year, the election saw like, voter turnout of like under 30%, which for a municipality that size is extremely low. And yes. so how, how are you trying to convince people to get out and vote? And is your message, do people even know that there's a by-election happening? That's not my job. Sorry, I can't do Tory's job for him. That's not my job. 
maybe 30% or less will show up at this election. My job when I'm elected is then to make sure that I'm engaging the electorate, that I'm accessible to the electorate, that the electorate could hold me to account. So they're not just engaging with me every four years, mm -hmm. that they are engaging with me on a regular basis, that they're holding me to account. So part of my plan in generating these new revenue streams is to do it within two years, which mm -hmm. is within or under my mandate. So when it's not done in two years, guess what? My third year is going to be very uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. So you hold yourself to account in a reasonable way that people can engage, make yourself accessible. When I was a member of parliament, I made myself very accessible to people and I was very honest with them. I never told anyone I'll consider it. Mm. What's there to consider? You gave me your thing. I read it. I studied it. I, I did my homework before the meeting started. It's either a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. And if it's a no, I'm going to tell you how to make sure that it goes forward in some other way. I'm not going to make you feel badly about it, but I'm not going to say, oh, I'll consider it and I'll get back to you. No, no, yes, no. Mm -hmm. Very honest, very transparent, very engaging. Doors always open. I don't care who you are. The, it's usually the ones that were the, that were the worst actually had these standing meetings with me. The ones that would come in and say, everything you're doing is crap <laughs> because you're meeting with them, Right. Tell me why it's crap mm -hmm. and maybe I could fix it, but you're the one I want to listen to. So yeah. it's not my job to figure out how to get more people to vote right now. It's my job to do that when I'm elected. And so as mayor, which is like a big job, how, how do you plan to keep engaging and interacting with the, your like residents? So this is going to be interesting because it might sound counterintuitive to what I said before. <laughs> uh, so Tori was everywhere, did everything on all media outlets, you name it, he was there. I need to negotiate a carve out of a tax base so that we could have revenue streams for Toronto. If I don't show up at some parade or something, too bad. Mm -hmm. It's going to be too bad because we are facing unprecedented financial situations in Toronto. Mm -hmm. The parade is probably not going to be the place that I could show up, right? I'm not going to be at every ribbon company. I'm not going to be at every business opening. I'm not going to be at every thing that's happening because I need to negotiate a deal mm -hmm. that's going to get us upwards of $500 million annually, period. Yeah, yeah I think it's there's- pri a It's priorities, right? So, so in that first couple of years, Selena might not be as available in terms of being in person at those events, but there's other ways to communicate what you're doing. So that, so whereas my actual physical presence might not be always there, the communication has to be at a 110% all-time high because if you're not communicating it, it's not happening. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between visibility you know, right. out in the community at these ribbon cuttings or what have you, then there is at like a consultation or a round table to right. like engage on a more meaningful level with people, right? right? I think that people right. can, can confuse those things. And whereas like the job of the mayor is very ceremonial and it, right. it's, it's not, it's to lead a city through right. crisis. We're, we're going to have what, to govern. We're going to have to like really govern and we're going to have to change some things around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and it strikes me that there, for some people, or for most people who enter politics, at, at least at the start, it's a, it's a calling, you know, they want to provide, be part of, 
be a, a public servant. You know, they want to serve their their residents, their constituents. But then there, there's definitely those who who get distracted by the power and the access that the position holds right. and lose sight of the public service that they're actually supposed to be providing. Right. And, and it seems to me that you have this very major sense of urgency about Toronto and mm-hmm. that if, you know, Toronto doesn't find this alternative funding sources that it will have very dire consequences, not necessarily oh. for, yeah, like for residents has. and like the city. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, I, how do you how do you maintain that perspective of being a public servant rather than a power player, even though they, in some yeah. instances, they may be overlap. Very easy. This is a borrowed job. It has never. It doesn't belong to me. Being a member of parliament for Whitby or a mayor of city of Toronto, it's not my job. It's a, it's a borrowed job. I borrowed it from my constituents mm. and they could take it back. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's either I get what I say I'm going to get done or I lose the job. It's just that simple. And so if I'm always thinking that this is a borrowed job and I need to perform you know, at my top game to be able to do it. Yes, that does involve utilizing my power, not for an egocentric perspective, but for the, for getting what the people need to get done, leveraging the political power of my constituents through me to get what we need to get done. There's a, there's a different kind of mentality here when you're thinking about the fact that this job, this seat that you're sitting in, the big neck thing that they wear, they're all borrowed. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not yours. So don't get comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've been thinking a lot. I, so I turned 40 next year and I've been thinking a lot about lessons that I've learned. And for me, one of the lessons is don't love your job too much because it doesn't love you back and it will at some point disappoint you and so like having kind of that healthy relationship with it I think is always helpful for sure and so like having that toxic view of your role as as a politician whether it's an MP or a mayor you know I think probably helps maintain that sense of public service I'm, I'm not sure if it's a toxic one I think it's a reality it's, 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 it's the reality is it's not your job. Mm-hmm. It's borrowed. It's not like I, it's, it's, it's not the same thing as applying for a job and, you know, working your way up the corporate ladder. It's not the same. This is a job that entails having, doing the things that are, you know, that you're supposed to be doing to run a city. But it also involves the fact that X amount of people are trusting you mm. to do right by them. And so, it is a responsibility. It's it's not, it's for me, it's a responsibility to ensure that while I have that borrowed job, that I do it properly because people are expecting me to do well by them. They trusted me with that ballot. Mm-hmm. And so that, that responsibility, I take that very seriously because I want to keep that job. Because I, I do love, and I did love being a member of parliament. I would love being the mayor of, of Toronto. And in that love for that job, which is borrowed from the citizens, that love then transfers onto the people that I'm serving. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a great place to end it. <laughs> and I know you have to get going. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. This was, um, this was excellent. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Well, that does it for this week. I'll be back next week with a discussion about tech. But in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, Aaron underscore G, and also on Blue Sky. See you later.